Our first speaker today is an old friend of mine and well-known to many of you, John Brooks, his senior medical advisor with the Center for Disease Control um, in Atlanta, Georgia, played a major role in the recent outbreak of HIV in the Indiana area that we're all aware of from the news, and currently is spending a lot of his time on the sexual transmission of Zika. What he's gonna talk to us today about is the changing epide epidemiology of both HIV and hep C in the Americas. So please join me in welcoming John Brooks. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for getting up so early. At least maybe this is late New York time, I don't know, but in the South, you know, eight o'clock, I guess we'll get rolling. So I'm gonna talk about uh, how the epidemiology of HIV and Hep C are changing in the US today. Um, moving on to my next slide. I have nothing to disclose. I work for the taxpayers, and I haven't inherited anything substantial since last evening. Uh, after attending this presentation, you should be able to describe key demographic changes uh, in persons at risk for HIV and hepatitis C in the US, identify three factors that are associated with increased risk for vulnerability to new hepatitis C or HIV infection, specifically among persons who inject drugs, and then identify three effective interventions to reduce the risk of HIV or hep C infection among those sorts of persons. So let's go ahead and get started. And this is a before and after question. These will be shown at the beginning of everybody's presentation and then again at the end. And let me ask you to begin with, which of the following interventions has the greatest potential to decrease new H HIV and hepatitis C infections? Syringe service programs, perhaps more commonly known to you as needle exchange programs, medication-assisted therapy, which is more commonly known as opioid substitution therapy, antiviral treatment of infected persons, or antiviral pre-exposure prophylaxis of uninfected persons. Why don't you go ahead and vote? Wow, this is pretty dramatic. If you get it wrong, it'll be a great tragedy. <laughs> Let's go ahead and see how everyone voted. And terrific, that's good to see that well over half of you uh, chose antiviral treatment of infected persons. I, We'll try and make that point during the presentation. I'm giving you the answer now so that you know when you get to the end, but you'll learn that through what I'm about to present. Interesting SSP and medication-assisted therapy as well as uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis also ranked. So let's talk a little bit about HIV. Some of this information will unfortunately be familiar to you because it hasn't changed a great deal in the recent past. This is uh, the demography by race ethnicity of new HIV infections diagnosed in 2014. There were about 44,000 in the United States. And as many of you are aware, this is a disease that disproportionately affects persons of color, particularly African-Americans, who constituted 44% of new diagnoses, and uh, Hispanics and Latinos, 23%. Whites represent over 50% of the US population, but were only 27% of new diagnoses. As well, when we look by transmission category, and this combines both men and women, MSM, men who have sex with men, uh, constitute the large majority of cases that were newly diagnosed, 67%. Heterosexual contact, about 24%. And I'd like you to just note that injection drug use was only 6% in 2014. And unfortunately, the number of new diagnoses attributable to contact with sexual contact between two men has been continuing to increase since 2010. There's been a 7% increase, and we haven't got any indication at the present that that's beginning to um, plateau. If we break that down, if we break down MSM who've been newly diagnosed by age, 
This shows in different age categories by different colors what the rate, uh, sorry, what the um, number of new diagnoses is. And I think you can appreciate that the number of new diagnoses is greatest among young men who have sex with men, age 13 to 34. But I also want you to recognize that it isn't necessarily a disease entirely of youth, that there is a steady fraction of persons age 55 or older who continue to be diagnosed with new HIV infection as well. So using our surveillance data and other information, we've been able to calculate what a person's lifetime risk is based on their demography. And this shows the lifetime risk of HIV infection by different transmission categories. And it's pretty remarkable to me that MSM stands out so substantially compared to other groups. Certainly it's a problem for heterosexual men and women and persons who inject drugs, but men who have sex with men have a one in six lifetime risk of HIV infection. Of course, that varies a lot around the country. I'll show you that in a moment. That's a very substantial risk. And if we hone in on MSM, the risk is greatest for African-American men who in the course of their lifetime, if things don't change, have a, a risk of one in two as compared to Hispanic MSM, one in four, and white MSM, one in 11. Now the distribution of this risk is not uh, even throughout the United States. I'm sure all of you all are familiar with the fact that the new HIV diagnoses are particularly concentrated in the southeast United States, which in this map also includes Maryland and Delaware. But you all live in the New York area and no doubt recognize that New York and New Jersey are also among the areas most hard hit in terms of uh, lifetime risk for new diagnosis. So it's a good thing you're here. There's a lot of uh, problems in this area as there are in the part of the country where I live. How about by age? Well, I alluded to the fact that there is a certain fraction of new diagnoses among persons greater than 55. Here it was 17% in, uh, sorry, greater than age 50, excuse me, 17% uh, in 2014. You know, most of the infections, as I alluded to earlier, are among young people. But if you're taking care of people living with HIV infection, it's a very different picture. Today, 42% of persons with HIV infection living with the disease are age 50 and older. And our calculations suggest by the year 2020, that's about three years hence, 50% of persons living with HIV will be age 50 or older. So I think there's a real need to be very well better understand many of the sort of geriatric issues, if you will, and for those of us who are just barely over 50, you know, we under, geriatric's a tough word to start to deal with, but um, you know, we really need to pay attention to a lot of the issues in terms of care for persons in these age groups. I'm not gonna have a chance to go into that today, uh, but it's a fascinating area that I think is gonna see increasing attention. So what do the trends look like? I alluded to the fact that men who have sex with men shown in the blue line here, um, there's a statistically significant increase in the uh, number of new diagnoses shown here from 2005 to 2014. The decline in heterosexual uh, contact is not statistically significant, although it does appear to be going down. And then our greatest success really in the United States has been with injection drug use. It's pretty remarkable that between 2005 and 2014, we've seen a 63% decline in new HIV diagnoses in this group. So that, as I mentioned earlier, 6% of persons newly diagnosed with HIV uh, had that infection attributable to injecting drugs. And to really give you the fuller context, if you look back to the uh, early 1990s, at which time we were only able to really diagnose AIDS, we hadn't gotten to the point of reporting HIV infection. Among persons diagnosed with AIDS in 1991, over 30% were attributable to HIV infection. So this really represents a tremendous collective public health and clinical success, close to that which we've seen with preventing mother-to-child transmission. But last year, as for those of you who were here last year or have been out of 
loop with news. There was an outbreak of HIV infection, unfortunately, in southeastern Indiana. This was an uh, event that I will hope that at the, by the end of my presentation, you'll see we might have anticipated could have been coming, um, but it really caught many people by surprise. This was in a very small county, 24,000 people in a rural part of southeast Indiana focused in the town of Austin with a population of about 4,200 or roughly uh, 3,100 adults over age 18. There's some really remarkable characteristics about this county. It ranked 92nd among um, the, count, the state's entire number of 92 counties in terms of health and social indicators. Um, it had the lowest life expectancy. Unemployment was twice the national average. About a fifth of persons lived in poverty and only a fifth of persons had completed high school. Importantly for this presentation, many were uninsured. So if we look at the adult prevalence as of February of uh, 2016, our last count was 188 cases. Prevalence in the county was 1%, and in the town of Austin, if I let 80% of people who were affected live in Austin, which is approximately what we estimate was there, that would have given that little tiny town a prevalence of 4.6%. And to put this into context, the average for metropolitan statistical areas in the United States, the average prevalence is about 0.3%, and the MSA with the largest, or, sorry, excuse me, the highest prevalence is the Miami area at 1.03%. So this is a pr pretty phenomenal prevalence. Why did this event happen? As an epidemiologist, our first question really is what, what has changed? And what has changed is there's an epidemic of opioid overdose occurring, uh, sorry, of non-prescription opioid use and heroin use uh, many of you know it from the problems with overdose uh, happening throughout the United States. These are data looking at the rates of um, motor death due to motor vehicle, motor vehicle accident compared to death due to drug overdose, which I wanted to use to kind of illustrate the change that's been occurring quite silently for many people we were not aware of it previously. So you can see in the blue line that death due to motor vehicle accident has been steadily declining while death due to opioid, drug overdose rather, has been steadily increasing, so that in 2009, death due to drug overdose exceeded death due to motor vehicle accident. And if we project forward to 2014, there were roughly 30,000 deaths due to motor vehicle accidents, 47,000 due to drug overdose. So that's about 15,000 additional deaths due to drug overdose, almost half as many as due to motor vehicle accidents and again. Now, drug overdose can be caused by lots of different drugs, but if we look at drug overdose due to opioids, which is the epidemic we're concerned about presently, whereas in 1999, 30% of deaths were to overdose, uh, were due to overdose related to opioids. By 2010, that number had increased to 60%, and our preliminary data suggests that number is continuing to rise. We know that persons who are abusing opioids, that a very certain fraction, a very predictable fraction, will go on to participate in injection drug use. Not all persons who may uh, have issues around addiction with opioids inject drugs, but it's very predictable that a certain number always will. So that as opioid use is increasing in the United States, so too is injection drug use. Now we would like to know very much where is injection drug use occurring in the United States and who's being affected by it so we could direct our prevention services appropriately to try and help folks. But this is a very, very difficult thing to assess in the absence of robust surveillance. The reason we don't have robust surveillance is that this is a behavior that's not only highly stigmatized, but often criminalized. So even if we did have a system to go out and try and find people, it'd be very hard to get accurate numbers, we believe. However, we do have one thing that can help us look for uh, active injection drug use, and that is the presence of acute hepatitis C infection. 
This can all, we believe this can serve as the footprints for us for where unsafe injecting behavior may be occurring. Hepatitis C is not only highly transmissible uh, and associated with non-sterile drug use, but the acute that acute phase of hepatitis C infection is short-lived in time. So that if a person is diagnosed with acute hepatitis C, it's very likely that the event that caused the infection had just occurred. And we believe that presently, most people, I'll show you the data in a moment, most people currently diagnosed with acute hepatitis C have gotten it through unsafe injection drug use. So to kind of characterize that, this is a study performed by friends of mine in the Division of Viral Hepatitis looking at the rapid expansion of injection drug use in the United States, which we believe her was heralded by the epidemic of new acute hepatitis C infections. Importantly, this is occurring in areas with historically low rates of HIV infection. So these, these are county level data and the color indicates the uh, rate of acute hepatitis C infection, the darker, the higher the rate. Comparing 2006 to 2012, not only are more areas affected, but you, if you uh, look closely, you'll see that there also those areas that may have been affected from 2006, some of them were getting darker by 2012. So this problem is expanding throughout uh, at least the eastern United States in this analysis. Then looking a little bit more closely in a, a core area of this problem, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia, this compares the rates of acute hepatitis C per 100,000 persons between those residing in non-urban areas and those residing in urban areas. Urban areas shown by the dark blue bars, non-urban areas by the light blue bars. And I hope you can appreciate that the, not only is consistently each of the years shown, 2006 to 2012, is the rate in non-urban areas twice that in urban areas, but it's increasing more quickly. So let's talk a little bit about the um, bigger picture of acute hepatitis C prevalence in the United States. Now, this is, uh, these are data from, again, the Division of Viral Hepatitis at CDC. These go back to 2000. In the middle is the year 2006, which was the starting point of the figure I just showed you. And first of all, I want you to note that um, we had been having a lot of success bringing acute hepatitis C infection down. In fact, 2005 and six may turn out to be some of the lowest years for acute hepatitis C infection we've seen in the United States. We know that in the years since 2006, through a number of different surveys cited here, if you'd like to go back and read them, over 70%, and I would wager really closer to 80 or 90% of diagnoses of acute hepatitis C infection have been attributable to injection drug use. There's very good data substantiating that. Not only that, but there's been a very substantial shift in the age group affected by acute hepatitis C. Whereas prior to 2006, the age group most affected, shown in the dark orange bar, was age 40 to 49. Currently, the age group most highly affected are young people age 20 to 29, shown in the blue bar. So we're seeing a shift in the demography now to younger persons and in rural settings. Other changes that we're seeing, in, a, in addition to having been a phenomenon of being traditionally in urban areas and moving into rural and semi-urban areas, uh, persons who acquire HIV or Hep C through injection drug use are now more white. Previously, it had been a condition that really uh, affected urban um, African Americans and uh, Hispanics and Latinos. And also we're seeing an important shift in the male to female ratio. HIV and Hep C due to injection drug use has traditionally affected men about twice as often as women. But now, in the current era, men and women are equally affected. So 
our agency was very, very interested in understanding where the next event like Scott County might occur. Um, and we undertook an assessment to try and identify counties uh, which were potentially vulnerable to rapid dissemination of HIV or hepatitis C among persons who inject drugs, an event like that which occurred in Scott County. Now I want to make an important point here. We were focusing first on persons who inject drugs. So let's say we found a county is vulnerable. It doesn't mean that everybody in that county is vulnerable to HIV or Hep C. We're focused specifically on persons who inject drugs. Uh, and secondly, it had to be vulnerable to rapid spread if the infection were introduced. Unfortunately, among many injection drug-using communities in the United States, hepatitis C is already there. But um, luckily, we believe, there are, very, it's not, there are not many that are yet affected, like Scott County, uh, by HIV. So we did this in a multi-step approach. I'll try and make it simple, because I'm not a big mathematician, statistical person either. We have friends of mine who can do that for us. But this was, um, we, took, we took sort of a classic approach. The first thing we did was we wanted to identify those variables that best predicted injection drug use. Uh, we used something called a Poisson regression model. And because our outcome of interest was injection drug use, but something we couldn't measure, we used as a proxy uh, rates of acute hepatitis C infection. We then gathered together, uh, using a lot of subject matter expertise input, the, a list of all factors that we believe were either known to be associated with injection drug use or could be plausibly associated with injection drug use. An example of a, one that's known to be uh, would be uh, low socioeconomic status. One that might plausibly be related is proximity to an interstate, because we know that from the uh, DEA, we know that many of these drugs move along the interstates in the United States. We hypothesized that living within 10 miles of an interstate may be a risk factor. We required for this analysis and this is an important limitation, actually, that the data had to be available nationally, so it had to be available throughout the country at the county level, that it had to be recent, 2012 or later, and it had to be complete. We wanted this to be relevant to today's situation. We weren't interested in what happened in the past. We're trying to look at what's going to happen, or what's present now and what could happen in the future. So then once we had identified a parsimonious set of variables, and it turned out there were six, that reliably and, mo and best predicted uh, risk for vulnerability. We then created a composite index score, what we call the vulnerability score, for each of the United States 3,143 counties. And basically what you do is for the, each of the six variables, you take its value in that county and you sum it up and you get a score. And then we rank those scores high to low and picked out those that really clustered towards the very, very top and identified those as being most vulnerable. The six variables that we used in our model were these, uh, that came out as uh, most significantly associated were these, persistent uh, percent, oops, percent white non-Hispanic population, drug overdose deaths, per capita income, percent unemployed population, prescription opioids uh, sold per 10,000 persons, and then this variable, pres buprenorphine prescribing potential per waiver per 10,000 persons. And let me just ask, how many people here are wavered to prescribe buprenorphine uh, or know of someone who's uh, good, that's great. So for those of you who aren't familiar with it, buprenorphine is a medication that, like methadone, can be used to stave off withdrawal so that persons no longer feel the need to use heroin or the prescription opioid they had to inject. So it's a way of helping people no longer need to inject drugs. In the US, uh, our sister agency, SAMHSA, can um, provide any internist or anybody with prescribing uh, uh, potential in the United States, not just interns, but any prescriber, 
the opportunity to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a daily medication where you can take 30 pills, 90 pills home with you. You don't have to go in to a methadone center to get the drug. Um, but you first have to take a course. It's online, a couple of hours, and then you get a waiver. You're wavered first. It used to be, it's now changed. Uh, it used to be you would be wavered for the first year for 30 patients, then for 100 after you've completed one year. Now you can be wavered up to 275 patients, I believe which is really going to hopefully expand the capacity for this very, very useful intervention. What we did here was we, from a database that SAMHSA maintains, we had looked where all the prescribers, where all the persons are in the United States who'd been given a waiver to prescribe buprenorphine and then take the number of patients for whom they had been given permission to prescribe and divide that over the um, uh, population in the county and get a uh, rate, the number of persons for 10,000 for whom uh, buprenorphine would be prescribed. And we did this because we thought this was a very good um, variable that demonstrated need for addiction services. The fact that people in a jurisdiction were trying to get WAVE to prescribe this, we believe, represented need for addiction services in the community. So what we did is kind of like a Framingham score, if you will, right? In the Framingham score, you take some clinical variables that are very parsimonious set of ones that are widely available. You can put them into a calculator and you come up with an individual's risk over the next 10 years of having a heart attack. What you do with that calculator at a clinical level, we were attempting to do at a public health level. Find variables, uh, epidemiologic variables that are available, uh, uh, widely available throughout the United States, and then use those to create a prediction of what are places where people are particularly vulnerable, their injection drug users, to new hepatitis C or HIV. Uh, and this is the money slide, it shows uh, the top counties, there were 220 that clustered very, very tightly with the highest scores. Um, it's roughly 5% of all counties in the United States. And they're focused in five areas. First, um, there's a large focus in the central Appalachian core. And these were counties in particular that had some of the highest scores. Then you can see over to the west, there's a clustering in the Ozarks area. North of that, in the upper part of the lower peninsula of Michigan, up into the northeast, uh, particularly in rural counties of the northeast, and then in the west, a smattering of counties uh, throughout various states, but no real clustering. So one of the questions that, you know, when you look at these data, you ask first is what do they all have in common? And what they all have in common is the fact that they're predominantly rural. I'll just say that rurality was not a variable in our model. And I'll also note that when we took our results starting in October of last year, back to state health departments, excuse me, oops, back to state health departments, and asked them, what do you think? Does this look reasonable to you? We got a lot of positive feedback that, yeah, this looked like what we kind of expected. In Scott County, the county that was affected by the outbreak, um, which we did not treat any differently than any other county, ranked number 42 out of 220. So we felt that our model approximated closely what may be truth. You never know, but we think it was pretty close. Now, we know from experience in urban areas that if you don't do something to prevent HIV from getting into communities of drug users, it can spread very, very rapidly. These are data going back to the early 1970s, looking at major cities throughout the world where they were able to do good surveillance of what happened in injection drug using communities with regard to HIV once it was introduced in that community. And inevitably, over the first one to two years, over 40% of persons were generally uh, affected, had been infected very quickly in the worst case, Ruili in China, up to over 80% in the first couple of years. So the lesson here, like Scott County, 
is if you don't prevent this from happening, it can spread very quickly once it's introduced. So what can we do to prevent this from happening? Well, first, there are needle and syringe programs, which are more commonly known nowadays as syringe service programs, which encompass not just giving people needles, but disposing of needles, referring to services, and offering HIV and hepatitis C testing. And this meta-analysis from a couple of years ago shows that this is a very potent intervention. This can reduce the risk of new HIV infection in injection drug users by 56%. And more recent data demonstrate the same can be true for hepatitis C. Opioid substitution therapy, now more commonly called um, medication-assisted therapy, is also a potent intervention. Providing that kind of um, treatment for folks can reduce the risk by 64%. And then over the last year, we've had the publication of really two landmark studies demonstrating that treating people with HIV infection is incredibly potent for reducing their risk of onward transmission to others. These were two studies, HPTN052 and the PARTNER study, two studies that looked at transmission from an HIV-infected person on effective therapy to their uninfected sexual partner and spanned a lot of countries, had different groups of people, uh, partners in particular had about 30% MSM, Interestingly, these two studies had very different approaches. HBTN052 was a randomized controlled study. Partners was a large prospective observational study. So studies that were very diverse, had different methods, came to exactly the same conclusion, that the risk of genetically linked infection occurring from an suppressed person to an to a, uh, sorry, an HIV uninfected person was essentially zero in this analysis. Now I'll just say as an epidemiologist at the CDC, we never say anything is zero, because there always are exceptions to the rule. But these are remarkably potent data that if you can get people treated for their HIV infection, their risk of transmitting to others is substantially reduced. So in a community like Austin, one of our priorities would be to get everybody identified with HIV infection treated. What are some of the challenges, however, to doing this in rural areas? And um, the contrast to New York City in particular is kind of interesting here. First of all, there's limited access to services. People have to go a very long distance to get to services. Um, there are very few transportation options. I mean, the network of trailways and uh, Greyhound that used to exist throughout the United States is now a lot less. It's not easy to find uh, a bus that will go between all these small towns. And um, very few people own cars. You might ask, why do few people own cars? Well, in Austin, people had sold their cars to pay for drugs. That's a very, that's, you know, you, you've got to keep up with your addiction. So in that town, people walk everywhere. Also, a lot of these people were uninsured. So the point here is, even if you were able to get to the clinic, you could walk across that threshold, but you may not be able to pay for the service that could be provided there. Secondly, the substantial distrust between the community of people who inject drugs and law enforcement and community leaders. This is a very important problem, particularly in rural America. We've been fighting a, drug, a war on drugs for over 30 years. It takes a lot of work to help law enforcement understand their public health role in, what, in helping protect their community, because really what everybody wants is to protect the community. Today, law enforcement is witnessing the ravages of this epidemic. They're the ones out reviving people from overdose, and they're the ones who have to go to parents' and loved ones' homes to explain that their loved one has died from an overdose. So we're in a place today where they may be very open to talking about this, and many law enforcement personnel, especially those in affected areas, when we begin to talk to them, they understand the value of working together. Um, lastly, there's very limited infrastructure in large parts of rural America. Not only is HIV and viral hepatitis testing often not available in communities, it wasn't available in Austin other than at the health department at the time this occurred, 
but clinical care for HIV and Hep C are not widely available. No one in Austin knew how to treat HIV or viral hepatitis. And medic programs for medication-assisted therapy and syringe service programs are not found frequently, if at all, in rural areas. The, the knowledge that we have about the value of these programs has really been developed in urban settings, but we don't have any good models right now for how to diffuse these into rural settings effectively. So as an example of sort of the mismatch between where services are and where folks are vulnerable, uh, my colleagues in Division of Viral Hepatitis helped us produce this map. Now shown in this map in pink are those counties that we identified as vulnerable. And each of these green dots is a place that a syringe service program existed as of September 23, 2015. So I think you can appreciate that there's virtually no overlap between these two maps. And folks have often asked us, in your vulnerability analysis, why didn't New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston, Atlanta, LA, and Oakland, you know, why didn't these places show up? Because we know there's a lot of injection drug use there. I think what this is telling us is that these kinds of places that have been dealing with the problem for a long time have very effective interventions in place that's reduced people's vulnerability. You know, syringe service programs are a marker that may represent the presence of a whole um, toolbox of other prevention services for people who inject drugs. But what we don't have are really good services in places that really need it. And these people want it. When you speak to people who inject drugs, or really anyone who's addicted, it's not something they want to do. They'd like to get off this problem. And we've really got to work very hard to bring services to these areas. You may note that Indiana in this figure has four uh, syringe service programs presently. At the time of the outbreak, syringe services were illegal in, this, in the state of Indiana. But as a result of this outbreak, the governor and the um, legislature uh, passed a law that allowed syringe service programs on an emergency basis that then translated to a change in our federal law. And now in the United States, federal funds can be used for the first time in many, many years to support syringe service programs. So in summary, uh, risk of HIV at present is increasingly focused among MSM, especially young MSM of color and persons living in the South and in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, the expanding epidemic of heroin and prescription opioid abuse is creating a new population of people who inject drugs not traditionally considered vulnerable to HIV or hepatitis C infections. They live in predominantly rural areas with limited resources. And this change really threatens to erode our substantial collective success controlling uh, IDU-associated HIV infections. We know that there are numerous interventions that have proven successful at reducing the risk of injection from unsafe drugs. I alluded to three of them in the presentation, but models to operationalize these in rural settings are lacking. Odds are in our favor, I believe, however. I'm a very much a glass half full kind of person. And if we use science to guide us, we're going to make the right choices. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to take any questions. I also noticed that my two questions didn't appear in the presentation. I'm just wondering if there's a way to bring those up. Oh, let's see, I don't know. Oh, okay, well, so thank you, very good. Thank you, yeah, I'm learning about how this works. So, now that I've given this presentation, let's go ahead and try and answer this question again. Which of the following interventions has the greatest potential to decrease new HIV and Hep C infections? John, you gave them the answer. I did, but let's, let's but see if, let's they, were see if they were paying attention. Okay. Go ahead and vote. John's such a nice guy, he gave you the answer. Yeah, oh, great song. Oh, well, I, I'm a, well, let me tell you this. 
I love the idea that people see the value of swing service programs. They're an amazing intervention, but they were only 56% effective uh, in the meta-analysis that we used. Whereas if we treat the infected persons, we believe that's gonna be the place that has the greatest potential impact because we're cutting off the opportunity for new infections to occur. Very good, and moving forward, uh, thank you very much. Looks like there was a vote, not only an increased number of persons who understood that antiretroviral treatment uh, or antiviral treatment was important, but as well, people began really appreciating the value of swing service programs. So I think I've kind of done my job here because one of the things I really want people to understand is how important SSPs are. You know, they're, they're often not appreciated enough, and I think these are going to make a really large difference in addressing this national problem. So thank you. Great. John, thank you. Yeah. We're going to take questions. Oh, okay. So we have time for questions. There's a couple ways you can do it. Uh, we do have microphones at the front of the room, and we also have question cards in your packets, and then there are staff in the aisles. If you have a question, just raise it up, and someone will come and pick it up. John, I'm going to ask you the first one myself, and that is could you comment on um, sex, sexually acquired acute hepatitis C? Yep. So uh, it's, it's a well-recognized phenomenon, particularly uh, here in the New York area, that Hepatitis C can be sexually acquired. It can be acquired through um, both vaginal and anal sex, but there seems to be a particularly increased risk now among um, HIV-infected men who have sex with men. Why there is a difference between HIV-infected MSM compared to uh, HIV-uninfected MSM isn't precisely known yet, but there's an increased risk for uh, anally acquired hepatitis C infection if you're an HIV-infected uh, man who has sex with men. Thanks, question at the mic. I'd like to know why contact tracing is not uh, one of the uh, steps that you do. Uh, in New York State, there is contact tracing by the County Health Department for uh, HIV and sexually transmitted disease, but not for hepatitis C. I live in a rural county, which is exit 200, uh, mile post 220 in the New York State Freeway, Interstate 90. In, 200, uh, in 2012, I diagnosed five people with hep C, I did the contact tracing, I reported them to the county, the county doesn't care, my catchment area is about eight different counties, only one of which is interested in contact tracing, this is not done by the, count, uh, by the county health departments, mm -hmm. it's not on the New York State uh, protocols. That's an excellent comment, I mean, contact tracing is instrumental in reaching out to find the people who may be at risk and also for uncovering new infections and then reducing uh, the problem, and I think it's, a, it's unfortunate that uh, many parts of the United States, for a variety of reasons now, have a lot of difficulty being able to fund people to do what is an important intervention. In the absence of contact tracing, I think the sort of things I described are activities that a health department might be pushed to, to engage in, but I absolutely agree with you that contact tracing is essential for anybody diagnosed with an STD or HIV, and increasingly we're seeing health departments pay attention to hepatitis C as well. Question at the mic. Yes, I have one patient who's on Vivitrol injections, mm -hmm. uh, an opiate addict, and I've never, I mean, so if he wants to use, it's really of no use, he's certainly not gonna overdose. So I, is it too expensive for that to be more widely used? Yeah, that's interesting. Vivitrol is expensive. I don't know the, actually what the uh, current price is, but people have reported. Can you remind us what that? Drug oh, sorry, is? Vivitrol Thanks. is uh, naltrexone, if ah, I'm not mistaken. That one we know. Yeah, exactly. Which is a uh, drug like buprenorphine, like naloxone, that will um, help treat the cravings for um, 
uh, for drugs. It doesn't so much decrease the craving as just sort of remove the feeling that you need it. Um, and it's an injectable, it's long acting, so it has that advantage that some people like. Uh, the problem is it's quite expensive, so it's not as uh, inexpensive, for instance, methadone or as buprenorphine. So, you know, the ability to use it really depends on what the uh, jurisdiction or the person can afford. I think it can be very effective. One place I've seen it being used that was interesting to me was in persons who were being released from jail. In uh, Scott County, um, you know, the jail is really uh, leading the charge in terms of health care for people with HIV and hepatitis C and addiction. When a person's brought into jail, by default, they're going to detox. And the sheriff has done a really good job at engaging uh, some local health care providers to help them detox in a way that's uh, reasonable. They provide benzodiazepine and other sorts of medications to kind of get the person through so that when they leave the jail after three to four months, they've detoxed. And they have a program of now trying to administer Vivitrol on um, exit from the jail to prevent them from falling back into injection drug use. In that community, over 50% of people when they leave the um, in incarceration facility fall back into this behavior very quickly because they may not have immediate access uh, to the services they need to prevent that from happening. Vivitrol is a possibility for preventing that. Uh, we've got some great questions from the audience. Could you comment on HIV and Hep C transmission in transgender population? Yeah, I mean, the risk for HIV um, and uh, hepatitis C transmission among transgender, many, they face many of the, and I'm thinking here now about trans men, uh, sorry, trans women, um, but could occur, uh, apply to trans men as well. They face many of the same risks as anyone else. You know, one of the problems we have nationally is actually good data on what's going on in terms of the trans community. I think we're making an effort, our agency and others are making an effort now to capture these data. It's been a bit of a double-edged sword because you have folks demanding that you collect the information, but others saying, you know, they don't want to have to reveal this uh, sensitive information about themselves. I think as community providers, as long as we remain very uh, professional and straightforward with our uh, clients and make it clear the value of the information they're collecting, uh, this stuff will be. We may be able to improve our surveillance substantially and get a better sense of it. There's no reason why a trans uh, woman is at any greater or less risk uh, for HIV or hepatitis C infection biologically, but I think for a lot, there's a lot of social pressures uh, and cultural pressures that may put them at much greater risk than the average person. And we know that HIV is very substantially affecting the trans community. Do monogamous couples need to use condoms to prevent hep C transmission? Great question. I mean, <laughs> it depends. Um, first, I'd get tested to see if um, either of the person has hepatitis C. Of course, once hepatitis C is treated, it's essentially curative, and if not exposed again, you'll be free of hepatitis C. So I think for most couples, they could determine whether condoms are something they'd want to use. The difficulty we have is we don't understand very well what the per-act transmission risk of hepatitis C is sexually. We do know, however, that in parts of the world where hepatitis C is very prevalent, the risk of heterosexual transmission and transmission among persons who are otherwi otherwise have intact immunity appears to be very, very low. It's hard to put a fixed number on that, but if couples were concerned about that, I'd certainly advise they consider the intervention. Uh, can you give us any information about nasal transmission of hepatitis C? Yeah, that it's a phenomenon that's been observed. Uh, you know, um, inhaling drugs can transmit hepatitis C. Um, exactly how it occurs isn't clear, um, but it probably has to do with uh, reusing um, the, the devices that you may use to snort. Uh, and it's something to definitely, when you ask patients about their drug use, if they report 
um, snorting uh, drugs or insufflating drugs, then they uh, should definitely be tested for hepatitis C. Okay, we're going to stop there. Thank you, Thanks. John. Thank you. Thank you.